Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading comes from the book of John, chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem, the Passover to purify themselves. They were, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Will he not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees have given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they, he should let them know so they might arrest him. This is God's word. Be seated, and if you have your Bibles, uh, please keep them open to John chapter 11 as we pray together this morning. God, we ask that as we open your word today, uh, as we seek you in it, that you would make yourself abundant, that you would dwell with us, that you would open our eyes to see you and our ears to hear your voice and our hearts to receive you in faith. Lord, we ask that you would be at work this morning and that you would bring the gospel to bear on our lives and on our hearts today. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, as we open this passage from the very end of John chapter 11 this morning, we are walking into a scene that is already in progress. Jesus' friend Lazarus has died, and then a few days later, Jesus arrived and announced that he is the resurrection and the life. And then, incredibly, he commanded Lazarus to rise and to walk out of his tomb. And then, even more incredibly, Lazarus actually did it. There were dozens of people there who saw it happen, and afterward, those people had to decide what to make of what they had just seen. There are, uh, there are things in life, I think, that seem to provoke strong responses from almost everyone. Things that either people love or they hate, uh, but that seem to always leave people with a strong opinion. I'm sure we can all think of a good example of something like this, but one that comes to mind for me is modern art. Now, I don't really love modern art. If I'm totally honest with you this morning, it's not really my thing. That probably makes me some uncultured swine. But if I'm honest, I struggle to comprehend how anyone could enjoy and really find deep and meaningful value in something like a white canvas that's been painted entirely white, which is evidently a real thing that people apparently take very seriously. And apparently there are people who love modern art because there are whole museums dedicated to the subject. And recently, last year, in fact, an all-white painting sold for over $20 million. 
Okay, so there are examples all over the place of things that people like me simply don't understand and don't really like that other people are willing to pay $20 million for. Most of the time, these, these sorts of things that draw such strong responses from people uh, are low-stakes situations. Even if you feel very strongly that a white canvas painted all white is the ultimate form of artistic expression, or if you, like some people, think that's a strange way to spend $20 million, for most of us, most of the time, it doesn't make any difference at all. It just gives us something to argue over. And if you are the sort of person who wants to argue with me about the intrinsic value of a painting of all white paint on an all white canvas, then I welcome it. I would love to hear why you think that's important. Obviously, though, there are other situations in life that are much more significant. Having seen Jesus raise a person from the dead, the crowds in John 11 were divided, and they needed to decide what to make of this man that they had just witnessed do the impossible. Some, John tells us in verse 45, believed in him. But some of them, he tells us in verse 46, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been a divisive figure. Some flock to him in faith and trust and adoration, while others reject him and accuse him of blasphemy or of being demon-possessed. Some have given their lives to follow him, and others have begun making plans to take his life. There are no tepid responses to Jesus. He is either divinity incarnate, savior and king, or he is a threat and something to be silenced. There is no middle ground, as we've seen over and over again in the book of John. This latest miracle is the most incredible yet, so it makes sense that it provokes very strong responses. And for some, that means faith. For others, as we'll see, this means an even stronger opposition. So strong, in fact, that the raising of Lazarus from the dead will pave the way for Jesus' forthcoming execution. His opponents, Jesus' opponents, will commit themselves to see it done. It begins when word reaches the Pharisees that Jesus has raised Lazarus. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly what their reaction to that news was, what they said, or whether, you know, they argued over what the report was, but we can infer certain things by his repeated use of the same word in these opening verses. After Jesus' miracle, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, some people believed because of the miracle. That's what the word therefore tells us in verse 45. They believed, some people believed, because of this miracle that they had just witnessed. And in verse 47, upon hearing about the miracle, the Pharisees called the council because of the miracle. Now, some translations, perhaps the one that you're holding in your hands this morning, uh, don't say because or then, or, or, or don't say because or therefore or so. Some translations say then they called a meeting, but the ESV that I'm reading from this morning says so they called a meeting. It's actually the same word as the word therefore in verse 45, the same word in Greek. The difference is subtle, but it is important. Then, if, it's, if the word is then, then it signals simply the order of events. This happened, then that happened. But therefore, or so, if that's what your Bible says, signals to us the cause of the events. 
Jesus' miracle has provoked two strong and opposite reactions. It is the catalyst for faith in some and for murderous anger and rejection in others. How can this be? How is it that throughout the book of John, we have such strong and diametrically opposed responses to Jesus over and over and over again? While some give their lives to follow him, to put their trust and their faith in him, others witnessing the very same man and the same miracles and hearing the very same teaching and the same calling turn away from him. John opens this section, this closing section of John 11, with this contrast, prompting us to ask the question. And he demonstrates to us in the verses that follow that there is a good reason to believe in Christ, because in him... God will work all things for good and will accomplish the salvation of sinners. This passage is an interesting one because it it contains no teaching from Jesus. If you're the sort of person who carries a Bible where all of Jesus' words are printed in red, you won't find any red ink in this section of John. And at first, it may seem to us like it's simply a narrative space filler. Like John included these verses simply to set set the stage for the events that will come afterward. But looking closer, we see how God is calling us to deeper faith and trust in his sovereign and gracious plan to deliver those who believe. The Pharisees call together a meeting along with what John refers to as the council, which is almost certainly a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest governing body within Jewish culture though it was only allowed that responsibility by Roman authorities who charged it with the task of keeping the peace. It was made up primarily of priests and other leaders in the land, and mostly those who were wealthy and owned land, and a few others. And this meeting is significant because these two groups, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, did not get along, to put it lightly. They were like rival political movements. It would be, their meeting is what it would be like if a whole bunch of Trump supporters and a whole bunch of Biden supporters got together to tackle a problem together. This meeting in John 11 is equally improbable. And it tells us something of how strongly they felt about Jesus if they were willing to get together with their rivals to work out a plan together. And all of this begs the question, what are they so upset about? A guy died... And another guy somehow made him alive again. The Jewish leaders in this scene apparently accept the legitimacy of this miracle. There were dozens of witnesses and credible reports that Lazarus had been dead for a good four days before Jesus even showed up. And so they say, in response to all of this, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They don't deny that Jesus is able to raise the dead. They didn't even have a conversation about it. They simply take it as a given, apparently, that it's legitimate. And by every measurement, that seems like it ought to be good news. That this guy who died was somehow made alive again. But as they make very clear in this passage, for them, for this group, it is anything but good news. And they say in verse 48, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They are afraid of what may transpire as a result of this miracle. Jesus is causing a stir. People are already calling him a king. His following is growing. 
and especially after this latest miracle, people are talking. These Jewish leaders can see that it's only going to keep going that way, and before long, everyone will believe in him, they say. And the result will be that the Romans will swoop down. In the current arrangement of things, uh, these leaders have been allowed to govern by the Romans, but they are on a very short leash. Any disruption to the peace will attract Roman attention and put at risk all of their positions and their prestige and their honor. Among the people in the region, they have the most to lose, they think. And this is what lies at the very heart of the matter for them. Jesus' following will grow and grow, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It's not an unjustified concern. Hardly 40 years after this conversation took place, their fears were realized, and Roman forces arrived to stamp out movements that were disturbing the peace. And those Roman forces destroyed the city and the temple. They looted the temple and carried back to Rome the contents of the uh, the Jewish community's most holy place. They knew, these men knew what Rome was capable of, and they knew how tenuous their situation was. And this explains to us why they act like they do as this new movement grows and grows, especially after the raising of Lazarus, which has energized the people in this this community of faith. They move quickly from fear about the situation to a murderous intent, as we'll see. They don't spend time discussing the the merits of Jesus' teaching as they've done in the past in arguments with him earlier in this book. They don't spend time investigating the legitimacy of his miracles as they've done with previous miracles that we've seen in this book. And they don't spend any time consulting Scripture in their evaluation of Jesus, which we've seen them do in the book of John already. They don't do any of that. Instead, the chief priest... A man named Caiaphas steps up and says what no one else evidently yet had the nerve to say. Jesus must die. You know nothing at all, he says to them. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The reasoning is straightforward enough. It's better, he argues. Ultimately, it is better for one man to die than for him to be allowed to live and to bring about the destruction of the nation as a whole. Now, this is, it's important for us to take a step back from this announcement that Caiaphas makes and recognize that this is a significant violation of the Jewish law that men like Caiaphas were responsible for upholding. The law that Caiaphas holds so dearly, which was handed down by God through Moses, prohibited the use of the death penalty, except for in specific Uh, circumstances that are outlined in the law as capital offenses. It was not something used casually in this ancient culture or for minor crimes as it was in other ancient cultures, but Caiaphas figures it's the lesser evil in order to preserve the nation. So he and the other leaders in this meeting resolve to see Jesus put to death. The reason is their fear and what they have to lose. And our suspicion about that is confirmed in Caiaphas' phrasing when he says, it is better for you that one man should die. 
The fact of the matter is that they were, if they were to turn toward Jesus in faith and become members of the community that had put their trust in Jesus, it would mean putting their livelihoods, their reputations, their power, their influence, and their prestige at risk if they were to turn toward Jesus in faith. It would mean laying aside all of those things in favor of Christ himself. And for them, that was simply too high a price. Even if they acknowledge that Jesus really can say, raise the dead, even if they acknowledge that the evidence and the scriptures and the logical consistency of Jesus' teaching affirms his identity as divinity incarnate and the promised Messiah, they simply can't loosen their grip on these other things in order to take hold of him in faith. And that's a relevant observation for us because for all people, pursuing Christ taking hold of him in faith comes at a price. Jesus told his disciples that if they were to follow him, they must deny themselves and take up their crosses daily and then come and follow him. In order to follow Christ, in order to take hold of him in faith, we have to let other things go. It's a hard message to hear. Perhaps no harder than when Jesus said, whoever loves his father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's a pretty blunt message, and it can be hard to hear it. Of course, Jesus is not telling people to love him only, but that their love for him ought to govern their love for everything else. It should govern our love for our family. It should govern our love for our career or our education or our hobbies or everything else. There was a moment in my life when I feel like I first began to understand this concept. It came in 2010 when two significant things happened just a couple days apart. The first was that I completed and submitted my application for an internship with a church plant in another country, which was a significant moment in my life that I had been working to toward for some time. The second event was that I met Jessica. Over the next couple of months, Jessica and I got to know each other. We became friends and we developed feelings for one another. And at some point during that process, I was offered an internship across the Atlantic Ocean. It was something I had been praying about for years, something I was certain that God had called me to pursue. And so it was a silly time to start dating someone, obviously. None of us would say, yeah, this is the way you should do it, right? Get a job in another country, and right before you leave, start dating someone. Perfect plan. So after I got the internship, I met with Jessica, planning to tell her that it's better if we probably just move on. Uh, because I was going to move to another country, I wasn't sure for how long. I figured that she would be upset, that she would ask me to stay, maybe, or that she would react in some way. But instead, she prayed for me. And she told me that she was happy for me to follow where God was leading. She said she would be disappointed for me to stay. I went into that night thinking uh, that I was going to stop seeing this girl, and I left thinking, I'm going to marry that girl. (laughs) Because she loves Jesus and his kingdom more than she will ever love me. And because her love for Jesus shapes and governs her love for me. Affection for Christ and trust in him 
ought to have governed the chief priest's love for his nation, for his responsibilities, and for the law. But it didn't. He loved those other things too much to lay them aside. Following Christ is costly. It means everything else comes second. But it is worth it. It is worth it. We see that in Jesus' two shortest parables, which, can, which each contain basically the same message. In each of them, Jesus discovers something valuable, a treasure or a pearl. In the first, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. In this parable, this man has to forego everything everything that he has in order to gain possession of this treasure. But he did it with joy because what he received was greater than what he had let go of. For us, following Christ involves the exact same exchange. It demands that everything else comes second, and that is a high cost. We are naive if we deny that. For Caiaphas, it would mean risking everything that he loved most. And for us, it means the same. And this passage helps us to grasp why anyone would joyfully make such an exchange. Because only in Christ can we find hope at our most desperate moments and eternal salvation in the sovereign heart of the gospel. After Caiaphas announces to his fellow leaders that Jesus must die, John offers some parenthetical notes to his readers to help clarify the situation in verses 51 and 52, the very epicenter of this passage at the end of John 11. He says, John says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Even though Jesus himself does not speak here in these closing paragraphs of John 11, we should not assume that he is not active in the things that are happening. And John does not want us to miss that, and so he spells it out for us. Caiaphas has unknowingly prophesied, which is to say that he spoke the words that God put into his mouth. He aims to see Jesus put to death, and so does God. But while Caiaphas wants to put an end to Jesus' following, God will increase it. John explains that Jesus would die for the nation and to gather in those who were scattered abroad. So Jesus' death does two things. First, it saves. It is the means by which God's people are rescued. That is what John means when he says that he would die for the nation. Second, it brings people into that salvation, united as a people of God by the gospel. Caiaphas is thinking of his own well-being, his own status, his own honor. Jesus has in mind a nation of those saved by grace, made up of all of those whom God has called, gathered in from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. That's us, you and me. We are those people. The crucified and risen Son of God is what unites us as God's people. It brings us together and gives us a unity that is more significant and more binding than a shared nationality or economic status or ethnicity or anything else might. At the very same time, Jesus' death would deliver God's people from something, 
namely God's just wrath against sin, and it would bring them to something else, namely into his family. It would be like having an overwhelming debt, something that you could never, ever pay back and simply being crushed under the the weight of that burden of debt. And then someone comes along who pays off the debt. This countless sum, this, this huge sum that you owe has been wiped clean by the generosity of some wealthy benefactor. That alone would, of course, be good news, great news even. But on top of paying off this debt, this benefactor has also decided to give you a vast fortune in addition so that you will never find yourself in debt or in need again. The cross is both the canceling of the debt and the gift of an immeasurable fortune. It is supremely and eternally good news. And all of this, all of this eternally good news that is about to unfold in the book of John will happen in and through Caiaphas's evil designs. There is an important lesson for all of us in this. God is at work even in the world's most bitter brokenness. It's safe to say, I think, that there is no more evil thing, no more wicked or terrible thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe than the unjust murder of God's Son. It is the single greatest evil act ever carried out because it was directed against the only truly innocent person who had ever lived in the course of a rebellion against an infinitely holy God. Yet even this, the worst thing that has ever happened, was very purposefully part of God's plan to accomplish the single most loving and glorifying act that has ever been carried out. Both of those things are true at the same time. The Apostle Peter made this point during his first public sermon recorded in Acts 2, just after the Holy Spirit has come to the church. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's will decreed that Jesus would be crucified. It happened according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. Isaiah 53.10 makes this point even clearer when Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And at the very same time, Peter says to his audience in Acts 2, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God willed it, Christ submitted to it, and wicked men carried it out. And so, in the very same moment, the greatest evil that the world has ever seen was done, and the greatest good that the world had ever seen was accomplished. Both are true. And both can be true because God works even in and through the ugliest, most difficult, most objectively terrible things that we will face in this life. And because he doesn't simply react to things, he didn't hear these words from Caiaphas and then devise a way to use them for good. He put these words in Caiaphas's mouth 
That's what John means when he tells us that Caiaphas prophesied. Our trials do not surprise God. They don't leave him scrambling, trying to think of some good he can bring, a, bring out of them. He is in them, sovereignly bringing about his good purposes. The logic of that statement, what I just said, I think is, is reasonably straightforward. I think we can grasp that here. Like, we can get it academically. That God is in all of these things. Though when we are facing evil and pain in life, it can be much, much harder to accept it. Our hearts will want to reject what we may have assented to with our brains. Because we don't want God to be the author of our pain. No matter what good he intends to bring about through it. But looking at the cross, we remember that God has brought the greatest good into the world through the most terrible evil ever carried out. It's a divine paradox, one that Tim Keller discusses in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Keller's aim in that book is to help people trust God more and because of the suffering, in and through, and because of the suffering that we endure in life. And he notes that God will only allow evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. In his sovereignty and grace, God purposefully and masterfully uses pain and suffering and wickedness and evil to defeat pain and suffering and wickedness and evil. Looking to the cross, we see how, through the evil plans of men like Caiaphas and the actions of lawless men that Peter talked about, God has defeated evil and lawlessness itself. He does this by sovereignly ordaining the words that Caiaphas spoke that night. The Jewish leaders resolved to have Jesus killed. John's commentary to us in verses 51 and 52 make that point clearly. God didn't hear Caiaphas and then say, hey, I can figure out a way to make something good out of this. No, he purposed it. He willed it. He planned it. He designed it. And there is great, great comfort for us in that, I think, in knowing that our pain isn't something that God is scrambling to deal with or respond to, but is instead something that he willed in order to bring about some greater, more significant good than we would have known otherwise. It's the, po the point that Joseph made at the very end of the book of Genesis when he told his brothers who had sold him into slavery when he was a young man, in the face of that betrayal and the years of suffering that followed it, he, he tells them, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God meant it for good. He was in it from the start. He knew, Joseph knew, that even though what his brothers had done was terrible and evil, the likes of which hopefully we will never completely understand. But even in that, God had been at work through it all to do something better than if it had never happened. And we see here in John 11, that truth displayed for us in a powerful way. Caiaphas says to his fellow leaders, you know nothing at all. 
nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He's making the case, as we've already seen, that it is for the greater good that Jesus should die. It's an evil plan and a wicked notion, but he is right, though he has no idea how right he is. He doesn't know, he has no clue, that he's just put his finger on the very heart of the gospel itself. Caiaphas wants Jesus to die so that he won't have to face the wrath of the Romans. He wants Jesus' life to be substituted for his own. That is the heart of the gospel, even if Caiaphas didn't know it. Grammatically speaking, we see that in this passage. Caiaphas says in verse 50, it is better that one man should die for the people. And then John affirms in verse 51, Jesus would die for the nation. It's a small word, the word for, but it signals something essential about Jesus's mission, about atonement, and about the very heart of the gospel because it signals something to us about the nature of Christ's relationship with his people. That word, for, this particular meaning of this word for, which is actually a different word in Greek than the other word, you know, that we, we for can have multiple meanings in English. In Greek, this particular word only occurs 13 times in the book of John, and three of them are right here in verses 50, 51, and 52. It's the same word that we've already seen in John's gospel when Jesus explained that the bread that he would give for the life of the world was his flesh. And when he explained that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, Jesus dies for his people. He dies in their place. He substitutes his life for theirs. But not to save them from Roman wrath, as Caiaphas thinks. To save them from God's holy and just wrath against sin. The heart, the very heart of the gospel is that Jesus takes our place. The very heart of the good news that we rejoice in is that Jesus substituted his life for ours. John Stott, in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, claims that the biblical doctrine of the atonement, how our sin is dealt with, is substitutionary from beginning to end. Our faith is not, at its very core, a path that we walk toward heaven. Nor is it a law that we obey in order to appease God. It is a forgiveness that we receive from one who willingly went to the cross when it should have been us. When in our sin and our unholiness, our rebellion against God, we deserved wrath, Jesus stepped in and received it for us. Galatians 3.13 puts it differently but gets at the same point. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He stood in our place. He took the cup of God's wrath that had your name on it and mine, and he drank it all. So as the Passover approached at the end of John 11, as John reminds us, the stage was set to fulfill all that the Passover itself had anticipated. For the Jewish people, it was a commemoration of the night that God had spared his people of his wrath back in Egypt centuries before this moment. He had instructed them to put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. That blood was a mark on them and on their families so that when God's judgment was poured out, it would literally pass over their houses. 
so that instead of their lives, which would receive the brunt of God's wrath, it would be a Passover lamb's life, whose blood was spilled, substituted for their own. Now Jesus has come, the fulfillment of everything that Passover hoped for. And as the trap is set in Jerusalem, as Jewish leaders wait for Jesus to arrive there for the Passover, the stage is set for him to be the Passover lamb whose blood will mark all of those who trust in him. He is our substitute, the one who takes our place under the judgment of a holy God. He does so knowingly and willingly because it is his own holiness that demands justice. It is the heart of our faith, the heart of the gospel. And it came about because a man named Caiaphas had an evil idea that God purposed for our eternal good. Jesus has always been a divisive figure. Throughout the book of John, we've seen some receive him and others reject him because the cost of following him is simply too high. And it is costly, but it is worth it. Because the sovereign heart of the gospel reminds us that we are never lost to earthly circumstance. In all of it, God is at work to reveal his glory, to carry us in his love, and to accomplish our salvation. Let's pray to this God this morning together. Lord, we... Um, we are um, humbled and stunned at the magnitude of your love for us. We acknowledge, Lord, that um, it is uh, our, our hearts often um, reject or rebel against um, your love for us and your sovereignty. And so, God, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us this morning that you would bring to bear the words of John 11 in our lives, that you would remind us that your love is big, big enough, sovereign enough uh, to work all things, even the worst things, for our good and for your glory. God, be at work in us this morning and bring the gospel to bear on our hearts, on our minds, and our lives. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son.